Welcome to The Outdoor Mentor, where the star of the show is the mentee. I'm your host, Colonel Retired Mike Abel, and every show I'll be interviewing someone that I went hunting, fishing, scouting, hiking, camping, or some kind of adventure uh, with in the outdoors. It might be someone new to the outdoors, or it might be someone experienced who's trying something new. Uh, The goal of the show is to inspire people who want to get started or who want to expand their outdoor experience to do so by listening to someone who's already taken that leap. This show is not experts talking, but people who took the leap and are jumping into the outdoors personally. Today's guest is someone I have known for a number of years, but we didn't get to hunt together until I retired for some unknown reason. Uh, today's show is no different because uh, we mentored each other over the last six months. And uh, so today's guest is CW2 retired uh, Larry Richards. Uh, he is currently a pilot and uh, the president of Kentucky and the Chapter Safari Club International. He's a damn good friend, a Purple Heart combat vet, and one of the most accomplished outdoorsmen you'll ever meet. So, Larry, welcome to the show. Thank you. Tell us a little about yourself, man. Uh, you know, grew up uh, in Kentucky, born at Fort Knox, uh, raised here in Louisville, and, uh, you know, just an old country boy, I guess you would say. <laughs> old country boy's got more passport stamps than anybody I've ever seen in my life. Your old passport's like Encyclopedia Britannica. Um, were you even in high school when you started guiding waterfowl? No, actually I wasn't. Uh, uh, it was slightly before that. <laughs> uh, back in the day, and this is going to be like the early 60s, mid early to mid 60s. Right. Uh, we had a burgeoning waterfowl cult down in western kentucky and my uncle charlie meeks was part of that we'd go down there on the weekends and hunt ducks and geese and uh uh that's kind of where i got my start waterfowl hunting my grandfather quail hunted because that's all there was back in those days was quail, yeah. quail and rabbits and squirrels mm-hmm. so you know and that started very early and uh as we uh uh you know that's just uh, kind of how i got my start that's all there was to do yeah. Well, I mean, when you and I were in a duck blind this winter, you told some pretty colorful stories about being a young man and uh, and calling ducks and geese for people, man. It must have been an interesting time. What, what did you get paid back then? Yeah, I think we got paid $3 a day for 400 <laughs> And if you were lucky, they'd buy you a Coke. Yeah. You know, at the, at the end of the morning that you're a, or a, a sandwich or something. But that, you know, it was $3 a day back in the early 60s it was a lot of money. Well, that's you good. know, for a nine, ten-year-old kid, that's a lot of money. Yeah, yeah. It didn't have to have a call, and uh, and you you just uh, it was cold. Yeah, I gotta I gotta say it was cold. Right. The uh, the the thick the the real thing was if you had a set of leather army boots, you was really in tall cotton. Yeah, using good shape. Good shape. Yeah. So did you did you uh, spend your uh, free time doing that all the way up until you got in the army? Is it, is it something you, you did? know? That's it's something that kind of hit me uh, on and off during a, during the winters when there was duck hunting going on, Christmas vacation stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, we pretty much lived in a duck blind. But during the summer, 
no, not so much. Yeah, fished. So I fished with my grandfather. That's all we right. did was fish. So you didn't you didn't take anybody quail hunting during no, you know, other times of the year? Or anything I like didn't that? have no dogs. My yeah. grandpa had the dogs. Yeah. I remember he'd load us. He had an old 50, 57 Chevrolet. It was almost was brand new to us. It was new to him. And uh, he'd load them dogs. They had great big trunks in them days. He'd put them six bird dogs that he kept in the garage. He'd put them in that trunk and put me in the back seat. <laughs> We'd go down to the country, which was Litchfield, Hardin County, Grayson County, you know, and uh, Beaver Dam, places like that where he was from, and we would bird hunt. Yeah. But, you know, that come come the end of hunting season, it was time to fish. Now, you, when, you were a young man when you got into the Army. Oh, yeah. I was, uh, I had gone to the Coast Guard Academy. I'd gotten out of high school and graduated at the end of May, and then the first or second week of June showed up in New London, Connecticut to go to the Coast Guard Academy. Right on. And uh, sometime about December of that year, I was in the Pizza Hut in New London, Connecticut, and run in, <laughs> run into an Army recruiter, and he sat down, bought us guys a pizza, and talked to us about the virtues and the abilities of being a U.S. Army helicopter pilot. Thought he could get us into flight school with a minimum of trouble. He was right. Sold. Sold. You know, that's one of the things, if you had to put your finger on a, on a thing maybe you should have done different in your life, mm-hmm. that's one of the things. I probably should have stayed in the Coast Guard. I don't know, man. It turned out pretty good. Yeah. Almost killed you, but it turned yeah, out pretty damn good. Yeah. But, you know, there's that was one of them forks in the road. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. You know, your life would have been a lot different had you not bared to the right and born <laughs> to the left. <laughs> yeah, the old road less traveled. That's right. Yeah. So you flew, uh, you didn't fly lift choppers. You flew no, attack choppers. I flew Cobras. Yeah. Yeah, I got out of flight school, and, and uh, we had four Cobra transitions available to the guys that graduated highest in the class, and I took one of them. So got you out. always did get good grades, didn't you? Oh, uh, you're blessed, I guess. Yeah, I know your daughter gets like 4.0 or something, too. Yeah, she's tremendously gifted with languages and stuff. Yeah, well, you speak African languages. She speaks European languages. I'm just glad when I come over here, you guys talk to me in English. <laughs> did uh, <clears throat> did you go straight to Vietnam after flight school? I went uh, after. I, I started at Fort Walters Mineral Wells for primary. They moved us to Fort Rucker for uh secondary flight school and then when i graduated i was a warrant officer with wings and i very well would have gone to vietnam right out of flight school but they sent us over to hunter stewart in savannah georgia for a cobra transition Mm. and so right out of flight school i went to learn how to fly cobras and got out of that school went to vietnam yeah i didn't know that you were at hunter army airfield i was too yep the old sack base there those old uh those old sunken they still use them, you know. Yeah, yeah. Those That's where Cobra Hall my was. God. We've never talked about this. Yeah. It, you know, uh, my first ever deployment, uh, our, we didn't have uh, cell phones back then. We had beepers, and we only got them when we were on, a, you know, on the alert rotation. I was a first lieutenant, third, third of the 15th Infantry out of Fort Stewart, and uh, beepers went off and got to work, and all the phones were gone, and that's when you knew it was real, right? Mm-hmm. The yeah. intel officers came in and yanked all the phones out, and you couldn't call anybody. You just left the house, and you weren't coming back. And We got to those bunkers at Hunter, those old underground bunkers that y'all had. That's where our classes were. Well, we used them for our pre-mission planning. We, we went straight from uh, Fort Stewart uh, on buses to those bunkers. They were loading up all of our equipment on uh, – Probably C5As. C5As yep. and uh, some 141s. Like uh, some of the wheeled stuff was on 
141s and the I literally will never forget seeing an M1 Abrams tank rolled into the fuselage of a C5 and and I had to go up and talk to the Air Force loadmaster. I'm like, "Excuse me, how is this going to work?" He goes, "Well, we can't take off with a full complement of fuel because of the weight of this thing, but we'll be just fine, Lieutenant. Get out of here." And I was like, "Holy shit." Yep. But we did our mission planning and uh Got on those planes, and next thing you know, I was in the United Arab Emirates, man. It was like overnight, so that's no, cool. we didn't have beepers or cell phones. Yeah, no, smoke signals and semaphore. <laughs> that's right? it. Yeah. So that's cool. I didn't know we shared another. There's, man, we've tread some ground before. Um, so you went uh, to your COBRA transition, and then they assigned you to what unit? I went uh, to the Charlie Troop 7th to the 17th Cavalry. 7th to the 17th. I've been in four CAV units in my entire career, the 7th to the 17th, the 7th to the 1st, H Troop at 10th CAV, and G Troop at the 10th CAV. Every time I got into a CAV troop, they changed the designation. <laughs> <coughs> That's interesting. So how long were you there? I was in uh, Charlie Troop until they changed the designation kind of near the end of the war after that April offensive started. Uh, and then they changed us to H Troop at the 10th CAV, and then I was – that was about the middle of May or so, and then uh, it was 26th of July, 72, I got shot down and went to Fort Sam. So I was in the Army until late 76, early 77. I was stationed at Fort Knox. I got out of Fort Sam, came right back to my old home. They asked me where I wanted to go. I said, I want to go home, go to Fort Knox. Yeah, right on. So How long did it take them to evac you out of Vietnam? And I was out of Vietnam the next day. Really? That's awesome. Really, they they took me to Quignon from you know from the field uh and then an air force they they opened up an old air base air force brought a c-141 in and took me they were going to take me right to okinawa but they took me to tachikawa in japan because mm -hmm. the airplane had a malfunction on the air con air conditioning system they didn't figure i'd make it so we went to japan i spent two nights in japan and they flew us to okinawa mm. and we they stabilized me three or four days in okinawa and then i went right from okinawa to fort sam nonstop. Mm. And they, uh, they, a lot of that's just dim memory for me, but uh, they kept us pretty well sedated. Yeah, I remember waking up in the hospital in in Okinawa and uh, this beautiful nurse, I mean, mm -hmm. absolutely gorgeous. Said, "Can I help you?" I said, "Well, I'm hungry, I'm horny, and I hurt." <laughs> <laughs> Did she take care of at least two of the She three? got the, the hungry and the hurt okay. handled. The rest yeah. of it, she just kind of smiled and went on her way. Yeah. Funny thing about it is one of the doctors in Okinawa is a guy named Norm Lewis. Mm -hmm. And he's a, he's a sports medicine, retired as a sports medicine doctor here in Louisville. Hmm. And we didn't know about it. I didn't know he was here, and he didn't know I was in Louisville for probably 15 years. No kidding. And. I ran into him down in a duck blind in Ballard County. Holy shit. And we got to talking about it. He said, well, I was in Okinawa about that time, and we we remembered each other from 1972. That is cool as hell. Yep. And he's retired now, living here in Louisville. Man, one of my worst um, – it's funny you bring up the sedation. One of my worst days in the Army was um, my brigade got sent back in pieces. Um, so certain elements, you know – we, well, we deployed in pieces, too. This battalion went first, then the brigade headquarters, and then one of our other battalions. And and then our support elements were actually early because they had to get the support set up, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, we got back before all of our units, and one of our units got hit. And uh, we rolled down uh, as fast as we could to Fort Gordon, Georgia. 
um, which is where they have uh, each army base hospital specializes in something else. Mm -hmm. And uh, Gordon had the burn unit. And those those kids still had their body armor on. That's how fast they got them. They got them to launch stool in 24 hours and from launch stool to uh, Fort Gordon, Georgia in the next 24 hours. And those kids were so disoriented when they woke up because they had them sedated, you know. That was that was a rough day, but yeah. uh, I hear you. Of course, it didn't happen to me like it happened to you. I just had to watch it. So yeah, there there were several rough days in there. Oh, I guarantee it. How long were you at Fort Sam? I was there until January of '73. Uh, maybe six and a half months, something like that. Felt like forever. Oh, I guarantee it. It's a long time to be in a hospital. What's well, a long time for a guy like you to sit still and just listen to doctors uh, and nurses? It lay there. I yeah. mean, you couldn't sit for a while. I mean, it was months before I could sit up. Damn. So, yeah. yeah. And then how long were you at Fort Knox? I was at Fort Knox for close on to five years. Yeah, right I, on. I, I, in fact, I would have probably still been in the Army. They sent me they sent me orders to Germany. Yeah, yeah. you mentioned that one time before. And I just never lost nothing in Germany. <laughs> <laughs> nothing you wanted to go back <laughs> and I find? I wanted to go back for. I just, uh, <laughs> I just challenged the Cobra IP course at Fort Rucker. I went down and just took the test and the check rides and all the orals and everything, and, and they sent me back with my IP orders. So a few months later, I get orders to Germany because they tow missile qualified, night vision, uh, pilot's night vision, night vision goggles. Oh, and an IP. We're going to send you to Germany. And I said, No, nah, I'm not going to go yeah. to live. I'm not going to live in Grafenbeer in a mud for nine months out of the year simply because yeah. you need somebody to do that. Right. Well, that was back when you know we had the Soviet Union, and the United States. Oh and yeah. We were convinced the Fulda Gap of Germany was where the Russians were going to come through. And and uh, for for the listeners who don't know, uh, when you're an IP or an instructor pilot. Um, in an aviation unit, you're kind of like the fat cat daddy of all the pilots. So, uh, yeah. So they gave you the ultimatum. Oh, yeah. I, I told them I'm not going. They said, well, you got to go. I said, no, because it says voluntarily indefinite on my status. It doesn't say unwillfully indefinite. <laughs> <laughs> Leave it to you to say that. <laughs> it said voluntarily. I'm not volunteering to be indefinite anymore. I'm out of here. Yeah. And, you know, it was a good thing. I, w- I had enough time in the Army. I w- another year or two, I would have had to either make the big decision, go or stay. Right. I'd have been at 10 years, and I'd either had to stay in to 20 or get out. It's you know? amazing after your after your combat wounds that you went right back to active duty. That's pretty – that speaks to your strength, man. That's awesome. Got to get back on the horse. You got to get back on the horse. Yeah. You and I were talking about veterans that take their life, and you said something profound. You say a lot of things that are funny, by the way, when we're hunting together. It makes me laugh my ass off. But you said something profound. You said, uh, I spent too much time trying to live. I ain't going to die like that. No, I'm not taking my own life. Yeah. And uh, that was, you know, it was like, I tried so hard to, to stay alive. Yeah, that's a good point. You know, it's the juxtaposition of, you know, you you try so hard to survive through combat. Why in the hell would you, you know, yeah. do that? So that was one of the funniest things you ever said to me was that I asked you if you ice fished. And you said, ice fishing? Are you kidding me? Just bring a case of beer over to my garage during the winter. We'll turn the lights off. <laughs> I laughed for about two days thinking about that. So did the uh, – did you you didn't go straight to guiding big game out of, out of, Not out of the, the hospital, Army. No, but I did it. I never lost my Ballard County connections. I always kept going back down there during the duck season and running into my old buddies, and we'd 
we'd goose hunt and duck hunt and have a good time. I'd take two weeks leave at Christmas, and I was driving down there every Friday night and driving back every Monday morning, you know. And, uh, well, those are some good times. The For those of us living in the state that don't remember, nineteen the late 70s and early 80s were the heyday of the goose season and goose hunting and, and waterfowl hunting in western Kentucky. I mean, it was as good as it could ever get. I've seen you pick up a spent shotgun shell and smell it and i bet that smell brings back some good oh, memories yeah. that that comes way back from when we were bird hunting with my grandpa they'd th- they had them old federal paper shells all yep. you could get right they're about a dollar and a quarter for a box of 25 right and you know he'd, he'd shoot into a covey of birds and and those those holes would go out in the ground i'd go pick them up and smell them I, that's some of the, my earliest memories of hunting they say smell is one of those one of the human senses that that really does that can bring you back pretty quick um, I go back to a lot of mornings, various places, but just the smell of that shotgun shell will do that. So what what were you doing when you first got out of the Army? Uh, you know, I <laughs> I had a couple of odd jobs. I flew the traffic helicopter here in Louisville with yeah. Major Dick Tong. You know, <laughs> He wasn't really the pilot. He had a pilot with him. We, we flew the helicopter, and he, he talked on the radio. And then I went down to Pikeville. I flew a helicopter for a couple of coal companies down in Pikeville, and I got a job flying an airplane, and the next thing you know, I was a, uh, I got a job uh, flying uh, a, uh, avi- as aviation manager, chief pilot for Chi-Chi's Restaurant, so that was about 1981. Mm. What did you do there? I was aviation manager. We had two airplanes, a hangar, and a couple of mechanics, five pilots, regular aviation operation. So that ended and then you became a big game guy yeah, or what what when, happened when well you know i never dropped that big game hunting i always i was always going off for a couple of weeks here and a couple of weeks there like in in 82 i got the job in 81 in the summer of 82 i took off and did 28 days in tanzania on a safari mm. now were, were you on safari i was on you? safari oh okay i'd nice. always wanted to go to africa right right in fact, when I was a little kid, seven or eight, nine years old, I'd sneak around the house with my plastic thirty thirty with a toilet paper roll screwed to the top of it for a scope and pretend I was elephant hunting. Nice. I watched all those shows on television, Jungle Gym and whatever, about, yeah. about you know, professional hunters. And I was, that was me, man. I was all over that. <laughs> well, so dream, dream was realized later on. When I, got, uh, when I got a chance, I had good credit. Yeah. Borrowed a lot of money. Yeah. But for them, for those days, and and went and did a safari. Nice, man. Elephants are terrifying creatures in the wild, man. People think that they're I love them. Cuddly. People think they're cuddly as hell. We actually walked into the wind was perfect, but there was enough wind blowing that our tracker could not hear the elephant in front of us, and the bush was so thick we walked into the back of an elephant. I'm literally, I mean, like 15 yards. It didn't hear us because the wind was blowing. It was eating, and the wind was in our favor, so it didn't smell us. That tracker came out of his skin and quietly and ran up an adjacent copy or, or a rock pile, a small rock mound. Uh, you know, I say small. Uh, it'd be a knob in Kentucky, not quite a mountain. Anyway, he scrambled up that thing. So, of course, when the PH ran after him and said, you know, just screamed, follow me, we did too. When he got there, there was 23 elephants in front of us. We'd have been stomped to death. I mean, we we oh, couldn't yeah. have killed him fast enough. No, nah, and, and they wouldn't have known you were there and wouldn't have cared. Yeah. They'd have just ran you over. Yeah, they yeah. just, whatever, yeah, that was 
some terrifying stuff. So you took a a, a safari where you were the hunter. Where I was the hunter. And, right. And I learned so much, and I was so excited about it. I actually extended the safari and and added a few days to it at the end. Oh, that's Just so awesome. I could hunt buffalo. Now, there's something worth hunting. Yeah. If I was independently wealthy, I would hunt buffalo every year. Every day. I, w- I would go every year. I would I'd go on an African buffalo hunt. I've often said that if you're going to have any more fun than that, you're going to have to start taking off your clothes. Oh, man, I'm telling you. it. Uh, I don't think I would ever take my wife on a on a buffalo hunt again. I mean, it's it's marginally dangerous. i Mallory next year. I, I know you are. Well, your daughter – well, my wife's a damn fine hunter, and your yeah. daughter's a damn fine hunter, but the dan- there is serious danger associated with hunting them things. There is, but that's uh, – you know, again, that's part of the – that's part of the <laughs> – Allure. Allure, the yeah. overall – Right. The overall experience is having your heart in your mouth about half the time. Yeah, man. Yep. It's it's a really really good time. Um yeah, we uh the night before I killed my buffalo, um we had them at sundown inside 30 yards and could not sort out because how dark they are and the la- and the light fading which one was my bull. Mm-hmm. And I'll never forget the smell of those creatures and being that close to them. My it was it's the same adrenaline as jumping out of airplanes or getting in a firefight. I mean, it is. Yeah. I walked, uh, you know, the guy who writes for Sports Afield, his name is Walt Prothrow. Mm-hmm. I walked Walt and his uh, significant other into the middle of a herd of buffalo in Masailand in 1992. And I think there were probably six or 700 buffalo in that herd. My goodness. And we got literally right in amongst them. And everything for a couple of minutes just they stood stock still. We stood stock still. I had tracker, a game scout, myself, Walt, and and Sherry, his significant other. And it seemed like everybody's waiting for somebody to do something. <laughs> Either the buffalo were like, "Well, what's going on here? How come everybody's just being quiet?" They didn't get our wind, but they were all around us. I mean, they were literally three hundred sixty degrees around us. My goodness, and we couldn't. The visibility is such I couldn't put horns on the one I wanted to shoot because that was just a big black spot. Right. Yep. In, in a in a in a sea of in big a sea black of, spots. in a sea of big black spots. Right. 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 And and the, after a minute or two or three, they kind of settled down, put their heads back down. Some of them started feeding. They started walking by us. And then I got to thinking, well, what if them ones behind me start walking over me? What are we going to do then? I've got these people in a position I can't possibly defend us. So I just stood up and yelled. And for a moment, it's like you stood up in the middle of a covey of quail, and they all flushed. They all ran away from us. Thank God. Well, yeah, that was the only thing. None of them ran straight forward. They all ran away from us. So you've jumped ahead a few years from from Chi-Chi's to when you were a professional hunter. So you went from being a client to actually being a professional hunter and running your own safaris. In about five and a half years. So from... The time Chi-Chi's, uh, the job at Chi-Chi's ended, how'd you get to be a PH in Africa? I spent, well, I started with that first safari. Okay. Nick Swan uh, was my professional hunter, and he was an old Kenya, Uganda professional. And uh, the guy I, I had scheduled, David Omni, had been hunting in Zimbabwe, and the Tanzanians wouldn't let him come back in the country. He had been working with an outfit called Hunters Africa. And they, for some reason back then, they wouldn't let him hunt. So I wound up having to do the safari. I'd booked it with uh, with Robin Hurt Safaris. But 
I wound up dealing with this old gentleman, Nick Swan. Mm. And he kind of took me under his wing, and we spent the next three or four years, I would every summer I would go to Kenya, and we'd get in his vehicle with his wife, Maura, and we would drive around all the old safari spots in Kenya, all the old lodges. Then we'd drive down into Maasai land, and we would visit places and do things. And, and that's actually where I started learning Swahili, was on those summer vacations. And as those went along, I got involved meeting some people with uh, Peter Swanepoel and Doug Scandrell and Ridge Taylor. And then I kind of got the feeling, you know, I can do this. Mm-hmm. I, I can really do this. And, and since this Chi-Chi's thing is coming to an end, I can see that writing on the wall. <clears throat> Maybe I should. Now, what did you do when you weren't in Africa? You I guided was, I, out west, right? Well, that came along about the same time. But when I wasn't, for those periods in the middle 80s, I actually came back from Africa and was flying. Running, oh. running, the, running the flight department. Okay. I was just taking time off. Take a month here, a month there. And, and I had good enough bosses, and they were, they were intelligent enough to say that if he's, I'm either going to let him go or he's going to quit. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so. That's called talent management. Yeah. I used to explain that to the generals I worked for. I'm like, you have some exceptionally talented people, and you're riding the fur off of them. Mm-hmm. You know, you're, it's, if it was a racehorse, he would have no fur under his saddle. You're killing your best people, and you just don't understand talent management. You, and my, my bosses had that, had that clue, and they gave me a lot of free reign, a lot of time off. Nice. So, uh, But at some point, you ended up in the North American, Northern Hemisphere. So in the Northern Hemisphere, our hunting season is the fall and winter. Right. And in the Southern Hemisphere, where, you know, Sub-Saharan Africa and all the safaris are really done – is in the southern hemisphere. So their hunting season is in our spring. That's correct. So at some point, you were guiding big game in the western states, in the United States. And then when spring and summer came, you were a professional hunter. About 1988 that happened. And how long did you do that? Oh, man, till uh, I think I guided my last safari in the spring of 90, I want to say 95. Mm. I did my last safari in the in the spring is a march safari in tanzania in 1995 mm. but i spent 86 87 a couple parts of them summers doing camp work in zambia mm-hmm. you know doing doing the grunt work digging the holes and and telling guys how to or monitoring guys building latrines and sheds and all the little grunt work that an assistant PH has to do. Hanging baits, checking baits, all that stuff. Yeah, getting getting your hands dirty. Getting your, my hands and dirty. Your elbows and, greasy. And your elbows greasy, not having much sleep. Yeah. And uh, so a little tidbit for the listeners. Here's, here is a uh, – um, this is some of that uh, bar room banter or um, – Stuff you can win a trivia contest with, and I learned this from Larry, and this that's what this podcast is about. It's its about teaching and or learning new skills in the outdoors. Uh, Larry, how many feet down do you got to dig a latrine in Africa so that you don't get flies? Got to be 13 feet. 13 feet? 13 <clears throat> feet. A fly, a fly will fly down 12 feet to land on a pile. He won't fly 12 feet and an inch. 13 feet. So if you dig it 13 feet, you're good for the whole season. <laughs> and, the, and the good thing about it is you take 
you take ashes out of the campfire, the white ash out of the yeah, yeah. campfire overnight and cover that. We just put it in the latrine and it doesn't smell either. Huh. See, I learn stuff every time we get together. You man. dig you gotta dig a you gotta dig a thirteen, 13 foot hole. Thirteen foot hole. And I'm guaranteeing you didn't. It was somebody that worked for you. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I ain't got it in me to dig a thirteen foot hole straight yeah, down. Me neither. It'd probably take a daggum team of guys. You had to have some memorable hunts in the in the Rockies out west oh, here. Yeah. I've I've you, you told us about walking a a, a famous client into a herd of buffalo. There's got to be a story from out west here. Uh, I had a kid, young man. He was 21 or 22 years old from Miami, right. from Miami, Florida. His father was taking him on a combination mule deer and elk hunt. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was a recovering at the age of 21. He's a recovering alcoholic and a, tra- a recovering drug addict. Nice. And he's got a he's got a business on Miami Beach where he's renting beach chairs. I can see how that could happen. And his dad is a a fireman from Miami, mm-hmm. and he books this hunt. And this kid shows up. He's he's got spiked hair, right? As was the style in the day. And he's, you know, he's just not the kind of person you would expect to see in a Western hunting camp. Yeah, I'd say he stuck out. He stood out. And we're at ten thousand five hundred feet in the Hoback in our base camp. Right. And the first morning, this kid shoots a 33-and-a-half-inch mule deer, probably gross scored 230. Jesus, Mary and Joseph. Right out of the gate. Right out of the gate. Right out of the gate. He's ruined. He'll yeah. never kill another one that Next mo- Next morning, we're on a 340 bull elk at about 70 yards. He misses him three times. Holy smokes. What Did he have the augers? Did he have the buck fever? No, he had a scope that was spinning in its mounts. It's, oh. It was a miracle he shot the mule deer. <laughs> It was a maintenance this issue. Is a maintenance issue. Oh man, that's terrible. Uh, I've, I've, I'd shoot a three forty bull every elk season for the rest of my life. If one walked up there, my God, that's that's a that's a stout. Yeah, you got one that's, right here. That's a three forty right there. Yeah, you definitely do. You got one right here in your in your living room, next to a bunch of other stuff. I'd love to have shot myself. Um, so. Yeah, I mean, the first half of this podcast with a guy like you, we have to basically tell your life story. I got to know some stuff. I mean, I know most of this because we're friends, but I actually learned a couple things. What uh, what ended that wonderful phase in your life? I think I know, but I, I got to ask. I met my wife. Oh, is that what happened? <laughs> That's what happened. She didn't want you in well, the Rockies for six months and then in Africa for six months. Well, if you look at 1992, I spent uh, 275 days paid in, mm. in the field. Counting, counting Idaho, Wyoming, uh, goose hunting and duck hunting in western Kentucky and Tanzania, Zambia, Zimbabwe, and South Africa from April to 1st of September. 275 paid days in the field. And when I came back from that, I met my met my wife, and I had to have a job. A real job. <laughs> a real job. Right. And uh, running off to Africa for six months probably wasn't in the plan. Yeah. And then shortly thereafter, you know, Mallory was born. So that kind of shot my hunting career in the foot. Yeah, well, you're, you're blessed to have Mallory. She's yeah. a she's as good a rifle shot as anybody I know. You've trained that young lady well. Um, so I've never asked this of a PH, and it occurred to me that I, that I would ask you. Um, I've hunted in three or four different African countries, and I'm always taken back by – trackers skill sets um you know they've all been excellent but there's different tribes and they seem to have uh 
I don't want to say it's not just that they're different tribes, different customs, different cultures. They seem to be a little bit better at this or that based on what tribe they came from. And I just got done hunting in Namibia and those trackers were Bushmen. They were very light skinned, very small. In fact, my pH said that, you know, when he was a younger man and he was disciplined, one of his farm workers, the guy took a swing at him. He hit him back and killed him. He said, he told said, Mike, I didn't intend to kill him. He took a swing at me. I punched him in the face so hard I killed him because they're, they're little people. They're yeah, like the size of, you can break them pretty easy. Yeah, those little Bushmen, they're like the size of, they're not pygmies, but they're really the size of about an elementary school boy. Mm-hmm. They're strong. They're smart. Do you have a favorite uh, favorite tribe that your trackers came from? I know you speak Swahili. Uh, you know, again, through East through eastern africa and, and most of most of kenya tanzania uganda there was a tribe called the wallangulu wallangulu mm-hmm. or the wa Indorobo. and the wandrobo were wanderers they wandered like elephant over a big track uh, they didn't have any home and they mm. were probably the world's best natural trackers and hunters the wallangulu mm. the wandrobo again very much the same and those two tribes are pretty much gone now yeah, the the Maasai are probably the best natural trackers in Central Africa, Eastern Africa, simply because they track their goats, their dogs, their cattle when they get off and get lost. Mm. So they're and doing they're, it every day, and they're doing it every day yeah. from from the time they're five years old. They're out with their their brothers or their fathers, and they're doing the the tracking thing. Yeah. If you go down to Central Africa, Zimbabwe, Zambia. Uh, what used to be Rhodesia, the, the the tribes there are are different in their ability to track. It's the same, but it's different country. Yeah, it's different country. It's where you learned your ability to track is is dependent really on where you learn to track. Sure, but there's a lot of it. That, you know how to age a track and all that. That all comes from the same experience to them. Right, but you know I, I had a lot of Good times with my Maasai fellows. They yeah. were really good, good guys. You tell some amazing stories about the, the old Maasai man that walked three days to see your snake is one of my favorite stories. It's one of my one of my crowning accomplishments. Sitting there having coffee in the morning, guy walks up. He's my my chief gun bearer, who's a Maasai, comes up. Says, "Bona, this is Elder So and So. He's come from Sing." Uh, Singita down there. He's walked like three days. He's got nothing but a spear and a little gourd. Gourd for water. Gourd for water. Spear, spear to keep the lions away. Yeah, keep the lions away. And he walks up. Oh, Buana, you know, says hi and everything. He says, I hear you have a big snake. I'd like to see your snake. I've seen a lot of big snakes, but I, I hear this one's big. So I took him over to the cage where I had that python. He looks at it. He whistled like the Masakin whistle when they call their cows. He said, boy, that's a big one. And he turned around and was going to leave and walk back home. Three-day walk to yeah. see a snake and was going to walk three he's days. He's seen the snake. Now he's going to walk back. <laughs> and... Uh, I said, no, you got to stay. I got to feed you and give you some tea. And right. so, so the guy stayed overnight. And the next morning, he was gone. That's amazing. Now, now one of my one of my <laughs> favorite funny things is uh, you telling me uh, after you captured the snake, after it became kind of an oddity and an attraction at your safari camp, that it took you a while to figure out what the snake would eat. Oh yeah, he was a pain that. He, he he we tried feeding him chickens he wouldn't eat a chicken tried feeding him dogs wouldn't eat a dog tried feeding him live monkeys wouldn't eat a live monkey we, we tried to feed that snake everything yeah 
And I had a bunch, a troop of monkeys would come through. I was in uh, Ernest Hemingway's old camp at La Bossard. It's on the only, one of the only wells, the only rechargeable springs in that end of Miss Island. Probably no good water for another 100 miles. And uh, there was a troop of monkeys that would come through there every morning right at daylight and raid my kitchen, raise all kinds yep. of mm-hmm. hell in there, pots and pans, and the cook would get up, and the next thing you know, the whole camp's up at 6 in the morning. So one morning, I, I'm just going to lay awake, and I'll kill me, a, I'll kill me some of these dying dang monkeys maybe yeah. if i kill a couple they won't come back right so i had a 22 mm-hmm. so the next thing you know here comes the monkeys i pop one in the head he lays there so oh, okay great what am i gonna do with this monkey i'll throw him in a snake cage nothing happens a couple of days later i gotta take him out here comes the monkeys again this one i shoot in the gut accidental it wasn't a, wasn't a good you meant shot to kill him yeah. i meant to kill him clean kill but, but, but it he's, didn't he's sitting there trying to poke his intestines back in the hole as monkeys will do so we thumped him on the back of the head Threw him in the cage. Boy, the snake came alive. I mean, right then, that snake came alive, said, whoop, gotcha. So and the answer to the The truth. answer to the question was just <laughs> just wound a monkey, throw him in there. I guess he sensed there was something wrong. He could smell the blood, whatever. Yeah. And he'd eat him. And after that, we got him to where he would actually eat a dead monkey. He would give it a courtesy squeeze. He'd throw a dead monkey in there. He'd go over, lay on it, give it a little squeeze, and eat it. He said, ah, I got this. So the answer to the question, your famous... African pythons' favorite food is monkeys. Gutshot gut monkeys. Gutshot monkeys. And I'll tell you something else about gutshot monkeys. You take a big monkey, yeah, or a baboon, especially. Oh yeah, man, they're mean. Shoot him in the head. Yeah. Throw him in a fire. Just throw him on a fire. Singe him. Burn the hell out of him. Hang him up in a tree. Leopards can't stand it. Burnt monkey. Oh, it's a monkey. Got caught in a in a brush fire in a right, grass right. fire. I'm eating. Oh. Sherbet. No. Absolutely foolproof. Shoot no you a kidding. baboon, throw him in a fire, hang him in a tree, and get ready. No kidding. Yeah. Man, I, on my leopard hunt, and I didn't get one, and, and if I ever go back to Africa, it will be for a leopard. I really, that was a fun, fun, fun hunt. Um, Aline got tired of sitting out in the bush all night long listening to the night creatures, and, and uh, uh, she started staying back in camp. She she went out for about three nights, and after that, she said, you know, you boys go play. I'm going to stay in camp all night. But, uh, man, we were on a really smart old time. He kept – we'd be on bait A, he was on B. We'd go to B, he'd go back to A. He was really, really smart. But He was watching you. We had in that, in that next time – that wasn't – the next safari I went to Africa was for the buffalo. And we had that same problem. We would have a troop of monkeys come through the kitchen about every three days, mm-hmm. and it would send the camp cooks and the the roustabout guy, the guy that oh, just kind of yeah. cleaned things and, and woke everybody up. You know, he was kind of like a, uh, for lack of a better term, kind of a butler or whatever. It would send them into an absolute tailspin. Those Africans working in camp hated it when those monkeys came in. and, and well, for, They're foul creatures. Oh, for anybody that's listening – if you think a monkey is a sweet, little, uh, cute, fuzzy thing, you've watched too many Disney shows or National Geographic. They will bite you, spit at you. They will poop in their hand and throw it at you. And they are stealing, thieving creatures. They are mean as a rattlesnake, too. No good monkey. Well, I'm sure they're wonderful looking at them in binoculars from 300 yards, but I don't want them any closer. No, no. So pivoting off a of gut shot monkeys, which I still think is absolutely hilarious, um, you are um, in the fall. 
of uh, of your time here on Earth, and I am in the late summer, early fall of my time here on Earth, and we're fixing to be retired at the same time. And you said to me, Mike, you need to learn how to duck hunt. We, you do not know how to duck hunt, and we must fix this flaw in your personality, young man. And I said, okay, Larry, what do you want to do? And you said, meet me at the orchard, tree farm, whatever, at such and such a time tomorrow morning, dress warm, bring a shotgun. I did. And uh, so how long have you been hunting down on the river there? Oh, man, I, you know, the manager there, Pat, he was a young boy in high school when I started hunting down there. Yeah. And uh, we developed that farm over the last probably 30 years. You guys have a neat, neat little, that, that one field where you're, pit blind is mm-hmm. and then you got a you got a blind there on the Ohio River that one field's got what's that 40 acres maybe that well, there's probably 40 acres in that bottom all told yeah and uh man it is a it is a wildlife waypoint on the Ohio River and that's what it was designed to be there's eight acres of flooded crop there we can flood those back eight acres against the hillside yeah and it's a natural duck spot they love that spot for years that's yeah. just one of the spots they want to go to yeah I'm not going to argue with you. We had great success hunting ducks and geese in there. Uh, in fact, my very favorite morning was the third morning you ever uh, took me um, waterfowl hunting. And I was learning a ton every day, asking a bunch of stupid questions like I was 12 years old. And uh, I, I still probably owe you at least five apologies and a bottle of good bourbon for hurting your ears and upsetting you terribly when I tried to blow duck call. But uh, <laughs> the day that um, we had a, like a flock of geese tried to land on our heads mm-hmm. and uh, we killed three. Um, I I went boom, boom, miss. And you were being very polite, letting me shoot first. And as they were trying to leave, you got one. And then they were out of range. So you just you had the discipline not to just sling lead. Um, had had you been a little bit more bloodthirsty, we would have killed more. But you were being really generous, letting me shoot first. And you climbed out of the blind and, and looked at those geese and looked back at me and said, Son, you have no idea what you just done. Oh, no, you, no, 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 no. Let me correct myself. Son, you have no idea what we just done. And the smile on your face was big enough that I, I think, you know, Pat probably could have seen it from all the way up in the in the orchard at the top of the hill. What happened? We killed, we, and I'm sure of those 12 geese, they were probably all banded. They were all a family group. But all of the geese we killed that morning were banded. And they were banded in prospect the year before. Yeah. We, we killed three geese out of a flock of 10 or 12, 15, whatever. 12 geese in that 12 bunch, geese yeah. in that bunch? And, uh, you know, and you told me to maintain my discipline that in your duck blind, we don't shoot passing ducks. We don't shoot passing geese. And even though they're in shotgun range, until they put their feet down, I'm not allowed to shoot and you're going to call the shot. And I learned that it's awful hard to miss when you do that. Yeah. Something I learned. And, uh. We'd hear volleys along the river where we could, I was sure it was guys shooting passing. Boom, 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 boom. And, no, not in your blind. Boom, 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 boom. Done. Done. And <laughs> and feathers on every single shot. Yep. Yep. That was a that was a good morning. Yeah. That was a good morning. There were a lot of a lot of birds flying around that morning. Sometimes you, that's one of those situations you have to be present to win. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, you say that every just about every morning when the dog 
when your linebacker of a lab gets out of the truck, Pete, yeah, about every morning you you say, I don't know if you know you, I don't know if you even know you do. You, I don't even know if you're saying it to me. I think you're saying it to yourself. You got to be present to win. Probably. Yeah. If I couldn't get up and do that in the morning, I wouldn't be happy. You yeah. wouldn't want to live with me. Yeah. Thermos of coffee, apple fritter, shotgun, as you call it, your duck rifle. A duck rifle. Yeah. <laughs> so did did you learn that as a young guy that that you're just in your and you're blind or you're pit blind or you're you know river blind whatever you're not shooting. I learned. I, I learned this. I learned that guys that only hunt one or two or three times a year can't kill one flying by. Okay. And what they come to do is to kill one. Sure. So if you'll hold them back until you can absolutely positively kill one, right? They're happy. Mm. And they it, taste it, so damn good. Oh my God, they eat good. If they just fly by and you shoot at them, well, yeah, you've shot, but you had no chance to kill one. Well, the other thing about not shooting passing geese and ducks that you taught me is even though a duck or a goose is not a very smart animal, they got pee for a brain, they get educated pretty quick. Um, and then by the end of the season, you were telling me you don't even like to call at them that much. You can't, really. They get pretty smart. Huh. They get decoy shy. They get call shy. Yeah. They get they get shy. They're they're afraid of themselves. They're afraid of other bunches of geese. Yeah. You know. So you've got to really, and when you shoot into a bunch just flying by, mm -hmm. you just educate every one of those geese. Yeah. You don't just educate the one you shot at. You educate them all. Well, the other thing that you taught me is that waterfowl hunting is meant to be a enjoyable social event you got to get up damn early that's yep. the only suck part of it if you do it right you're not too awful cold mm -mm. you're not too awful wet uh you got the company of friends and a dog and you're meant to enjoy yourself you I, can talk I, about politics whatever you want to talk about cars trucks planes motorcycles women yeah but yeah it's a social event yeah that that's was the cool thing. part for me you, you were telling me you and one of your buddies that used to guide would uh crack the lid off a bottle oh. of bottle take, of bourbon and take, spin the top off a redneck a bottle of maker's mark and throw it out in a water hole so you had an open bottle and blind yeah that was back in the 70s that was early yeah yeah, yeah 70s yeah and the, the winter of 80 and 81 when it got so cold and we drank a lot of whiskey back then yeah well you i mean you guys got a hell of a setup up there man we we were blessed that our our friend our mutual friend brian Mackey invited us down to his setup and he's worked with department officials you department of fish and wildlife uh u.s fish and wildlife to put a really really neat uh waterfowl habitat deal down in one he's of, got everything they need he's got water he's got cover he's got feed it's right along the it's right river along, right along the river yeah that was a great time down there um seeing how so i got to learn from you and watch him do it and uh you know, I, I heard so many daggum stories that we'd have to do about a three-hour podcast to tell them all. <clears throat> but the other thing I learned about ducks, and this makes perfect sense, but if you don't learn it, you know, this is you mentoring me on my mentor podcast, but this is what happened. We'd have, towards the end of the season, no matter how you laid out the decoys, no matter, you know, which technique you were using, and, and we had ice on the water, you had the ice eater working and all that, and... And uh, they wanted to land on the river out of range, or they wanted to land in the sluice behind us out of range. And uh, we saw some pass them, and they went over, and I said, damn it, I should go back there and kill them. And you said, you ought to. 
And I said, really? I can climb out of this blind and crawl over to that sluice? And you said, Mike, you can't decoy ducks when there's live ducks near you. That's true. Yeah. They're going to go. They're going to go. I don't know how they know. They're going <laughs> to They're going to go to them real ducks every time. Doesn't matter how good you decoy them. Doesn't matter are. how good. You can paint them, wash them at the car wash, do it, whatever you want to do with them. They're going to go to them live ducks every time. Yeah. And when you got two live ducks sitting out on the river, yeah. them 500 ducks flying by are going to go light with them too. Doesn't you know? And you guys, you and Pat probably put out what I saw you put out this winter, all decoys total, not just the ones that we put out every morning in the water, but the ones that were in the field that we would set up in darkness and make sure that we're good. I'm gonna guess 200 decoys total. Yeah, uh, there was that many full bodies. Okay, so including the silhouettes, probably three, three fifty. Three, three, and we and we have a barn full. Oh we, yeah, and we, we never right. put out anywhere near all the decoys. Right. Pat. But there just was never enough cold weather. Enough of migration didn't happen. Yeah. And we didn't need all those Well, decoys. that brings me to the last point I learned from you. Um, good segue, my friend. Good segue is that in in this part of Kentucky, you know, just north of Louisville, um, even though we're along the Ohio River, we really don't get – we're not on a, a flyway, like, a, like the center of a flyway, you know. No. And uh, we don't get um, – big flocks unless it gets cold enough to freeze the water north of us in indiana and in, in ohio if we have if we have a good winter if if ohio up around columbus and those areas if they get froze up we'll get a lot of ducks and they'll, they'll use that ohio river as a as a kind of a semi flyway to get over to the mississippi flyway mm -hmm. and then they'll head south yeah so they, they come you know they're here a day or two and they leave right because they're really headed south right yeah, and you were telling me about, you know, the, how to identify a, a local duck versus a, a you know, a, a, a migrating breeding duck and, and, all, and so and so forth. And then, uh, but uh, Pete's a good dog, man. Oh, yeah. He, he's out of a long line of good dogs. His daddy was a, his daddy was a barn burner. Yeah. His daddy was a barn burner. He, he, I've seen him stand on the Indiana bank with a duck in his mouth. Yeah, and I'm hunting on the Kentucky side, and it's damn near a mile across there. Yeah. Cold, fast-moving water, too. Yep, and, and you know, them dogs, they figure that out. They figure out how to do that, just lickety-split. He's five. He's been hunting since he was six months old. Well, we thought we – I forget what we called the last duck I shot of the season was a, a hooded merganser. It was a, it was a hooded merganser, In yeah. full breeding plumage. Yep. But we – he was coming by fast enough, and you told me to get ready to shoot, and I did – and he he just he was gonna light on our on our hole, and then he pulled up like like almost a touch and go with a mm -hmm. plane, and decided he made the decision to go to the river real quick. Well, I still got him because he was gonna light, so he told me get ready to shoot. And I forget what kind of duck you called that him coming in so low and fast, but Pete went over that fourteen foot bank. It's fourteen feet straight down mud. Never gave it a thought. Never gave it a thought. He went over that bank. I mean, at full sprint, mm -hmm. airborne, kind of, kind of caught one bound on the on the mud, on the way down, hit that frozen. Well, it wasn't frozen, but ice cold water chest first, and went. I don't know, hundred, hundred twenty five yards, probably out into that moving water to get my duck. Brought it back, and the plumage was still in such good shape. You said, Mike, you got to mount that. Duck. I was impressed with that dog that day. And he didn't go to the duck. He went downriver. 
Yeah. He had to smart. He had to smart. He cut it off. To cut that duck off. He knew if he swam to that duck, he wasn't going to catch it. But he also knew if he swam out there, the duck would come to him. And that, he swam at an angle to meet that duck perfectly. That was impressive, man. Yeah, that's an old dog. I mean, that's a dog's experience. Right. He's he's missed a bird and and remembered and, fi- it. and figured that out. Yeah, you can't teach that. No. Yeah, man, I'm telling you, that was a. I I am now forever hooked on waterfowl. If, if I, I really don't enjoy hunting something I don't enjoy eating, Ooh. I was shocked. I was absolutely shocked how much I like duck, man. It's good. Oh, my Lord. People say, oh, it's crazy, it's this, it's that. That's because you've never had anybody cook it for you knew how to cook it. Aline, my my lovely wife, Aline, um, you gave us a recipe that had some kind of like oriental type ingredients, you know, and um, she decided to do a stir fry Mm -hmm. and and medallioned the duck breasts and and it came out, you know, a little bit bit past rare, I guess medium, medium rare. Oh, son. I could eat that every other day till I died. Yeah. It's damn good. Duck poppers is my favorite. Take a little jalapeno yeah. and duck breast and some cream cheese and a little pineapple and banana pepper and put it on the grill. Right. That's, that's outstanding. So last year in preparation for um, this this thing we're going to call uh, retirement, um or probably back to your old days where you were uh, living out of a pickup truck just hunting and fishing every day. But uh, you took me striper fishing. Mm. And you have a pretty damn good system down for striper fishing on Lake Cumberland where you sometimes we have as many as eight rods running. Um, you know, one straight back, three on each side on planers, and then one straight down off of the uh, starboard side with a bigger weight on it. Mm. And so covering the entire water column probably covering 40 yards horizontal to the to, yeah. to, you know perpendicular excuse me to to the path the boat's traveling and uh man last year we did did pretty damn good this year we went for an overnight and had a hell of a nasty rain and a high pressure cold front come in we marked so many fish and that's exasperating i mean we could see them we could see the bait but they just weren't biting they just didn't want what we were doing and man i've learned it was what our fourth day, our fourth day fishing together on when well, your boat's what twenty four foot. Twenty four foot. Yeah, we're fishing on that, and you you uh, you taught me how to do planer boards. You taught me how to throw a cast net, and man, we still did good making bait. Oh yeah, even in bad situations, we did really good making bait. Um, stayed up, had a whiskey or two. Um, used that that deep green light. Ooh. That's and, a that's a game changer. And uh, woke up, and there's a bait ball underneath the back of your boat that would choke an elephant. Mm. And uh, so we made good bait. We just couldn't get them to bite. Yeah, some days they don't bite. Yeah, right. But you know, I, I'm still I'm still excited about it because I'm you, you know you're teaching me how you run your boat, which mm. is you know I've run my own boats. I've run my own boats in, off the Florida coast and the Bahamas. I mean, but I'm gonna learn your way. Then you teach me how to you know, properly throw a cast net. I've been doing it wrong my whole life. <laughs> and uh, so that was our segue from duck season with some striper time to turkey season. Mm. And I said, hey, man, you want a turkey hunt this year? And you said, absolutely. How many days we turkey hunt together yeah, we this year? Nine or ten. Yeah. We hunted a lot. Yeah. We hunted a lot. And, and I, it's the most I've turkey hunted in ever. Yeah. 
I mean, I've I've never gotten to turkey hunt that much. I just never had the time. Now you do. Now I do. So yeah. guess what? <laughs> and and you know, I, it's the one. Th- it's probably the one animal I I, I can actually help you a little bit mm. with um, on the face of the earth. Uh, we're gonna hunt for mule deer later this year, and you're gonna teach me how to do that. Um, we both drew our Montana tags. Hell yeah. Yeah. Um. But uh, we hunted public land every day but one. How'd you feel about that? I loved it. Yeah. I, I I had no, I had no. Uh, I've killed turkeys, but I've never really hunted them. You know, I've I've killed them because I knew where they were at, and I go there and yeah. sit around. There's one, shoot it. Right. But I've never really hunted them to the like we did this year. Yeah, you killed the first turkey ever at Fort Knox. I did 1974. Yeah, so they were basically turkeys were basically extirpated from Kentucky and Fort Knox still had some. They had their very first season. They had stocked them, I think in 70 or 69 or 70, 71 something right. like that and they hadn't hunted them. In fact, Kentucky hadn't hunted them. They had a season at LBL like a the weekend after that. It was yeah. the first two turkey seasons that were in for, in Kentucky and forever. Right. And so they opened the season on Knox. You showed me those pictures, man. Those old 35-millimeter pictures of you with that bird. You look awful proud. I looked awful young. You did. <laughs> I looked awful young. I will young. tell you that you made a damn fine recovery from your from your war wounds, man. You don't look you don't look for what you went through. You don't look too tore up in those pictures. Yeah. I don't know what there is about that. Well, like you said, you work so hard to survive. Ain't no damn way you're taking your own life. You know, I was out of the hospital a week or two. It was... Almost January, and I had my my wife's name or my wife's family was from New Hampshire, mm-hmm. and so we went from Fort Sam in 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 the sun and warm to the Great Bay of New Hampshire. Oh my! And they asked me I had I had bought a twelve gauge Browning Auto Five the day mm. before I went to Vietnam. Yeah, and uh, everybody was over at the in-laws house and they were all saying hi i'm glad you made it sorry you're so screwed up you know right so what do you want to do i said well, i'm gonna go duck hunt i got this brand new shotgun i never killed a duck and uh, one of her cousins said well let's go in the morning we drug up went up on the great bay off of rochester new hampshire and it was bitter cold mm. bitter cold mm. and i was having a tough time just keeping my stuff together i mean i was i was not physically able to be there and do you that you weren't fully recovered i wasn't recovered. Yeah. i still had grafts that were bleeding and and i couldn't see out of but one eye and here come an old mallard hen and i killed her <laughs> and i date <laughs> and i date my recovery from that shot oh yeah that's a when, great way to look at it because when we picked that duck up he looked at me and said i'm ready to go are you i said yeah i'm ready to go <laughs> <laughs> you uh do I remember a story right where you swam the Salt River to get a duck in January? I jumped in the Salt River to get a goose. It was like 15 or 20 feet off the bank. Surely I can get in that water, get that goose, and get out before I freeze. Wrong. <laughs> you can't do it. And the guy that was with me, the, the, the XO of the cab troop I was in, he was with me hunting at that time. He said, I don't know. I said, uh, I said well, we got the boat here. We could always go back two or three miles, get the boat, come up and get this, this goose. Or I can just jump in here. I mean, she's just 15 feet off the bank. Yeah. I jumped in that water and immediately jumped right back out. I was froze to death. <laughs> I don't know what I was thinking. <laughs> I wasn't thinking, obviously, because we wound up going to get in the boat. The, yeah. the walk warmed me up. Yeah. We had to build a fire and get warm and all that. But, of course, I 
I jumped. I stripped off all my clothes. I was butt naked. Yeah. Jumped in a river. And in the next Salt thing, River in January. Yeah, Salt yeah. River January. It was like the middle of January, too. And it yeah. was the summer or the winter of 73. And you all know how cold that was. Yeah. Bad decision. Oh, yeah. It was one of my brighter moments. But full circle, your back hunting knocks uh, started last fall. You took Mallory for deer one day. Yeah. And, now, and now we've. And we've, I hadn't hunted on Fort Knox since the. 75 yeah and you looked at the new you looked at the 35 45 years yeah yeah decades decades and you looked at the new hunting map and you were like what how how the hell is that off limits that was my best spot (laughs) all the spots that i knew and and cherished are all unavailable now we can only hunt around the edges of what i used to i had a hundred and ten thousand acre private hunting ground yeah well, you know, that was part of, you know, you being a veteran and a good friend of mine, I'm absolutely giving up my spots. <laughs> and that was one of the things I said to you every day we hunted there and on the WMAs we hunted is, did you drop a pin? Because there may be a day you want to hunt. I don't. So, yeah, I got a pin. Yeah. So we ran into people every day. Every it was crowded. Day. It was more crowded than I remember. I remember when I turkey hunted there in the 70s, you wouldn't see a person from daylight to dark. Yeah. I, I never felt like we were in any uh, unsafe, you know, people worry about hunting public land because there's people around, but, and you and I are a little different than the average Joe. I mean, we're both combat vets. You you were in a, a much tougher shooting war than I was. The insurgents we fought with, <coughs> the insurgents we fought would run away from you. If they knew they were going to lose, they wouldn't stand and fight big sissies. But uh, we're not normal guys. So if it was a little testy, we probably would have been fine. But the truth of the matter is we never even got a testy day. No. No, not really. Yeah. Not really. We could hear people and see people occasionally. Yeah. But no, we never had an issue. But one of the things that, you know, and you don't care, but, you know, you were polite enough to say, look, I, I don't 100% know what I'm doing yet with turkeys and on public lands. So I'm going to ask Mike questions. So the first first day you said, well, you know, what time we meeting? And I said, oh, we need to be there at 4 a.m. So, you know, I'm getting up at 2.30. I don't know what time you're getting up. Yeah, two. Yeah. Got an extra 20 minutes. Yeah, extra 20 minute drive. But that helped us beat all the other public land hunters yeah. into the best spots. We and, were in your spots before anybody else. Yeah. And um, that old park your truck strategically thing works. We yep. only had, uh, although we ran into people, we only actually had... We only probably had, what, three or four people actually encroach, like come all the way in. Mm-hmm. And that was actually on a WMA up in Owen County. Right. That guy was the worst owl hooter on the planet. I've never heard an owl hoot that bad. Yeah, if owls knew that, if owls knew they sounded like that, they'd cut their throats. Yeah, they cut their own throats. Yeah. It was terrible. And and he kept doing it all the way to like 11 a.m. And he walked his way. We had a bird goblin on a tough WMA, and I thought we had a chance. And then I hear this owl hooting that sounds like an owl's been run over. And it was at 10, 30, 11 o'clock in the morning. Yeah. Owls are sleeping at 10, 30, 11 o'clock. Yeah. I've never seen one after daylight. Yeah. So, I mean, other than that, it went real good. I went great. I yeah. loved it. I we, killed a turkey. Yeah. <laughs> we, well, um, our best morning, we didn't kill a turkey. What'd you think of that morning we had at least seven birds gobbling within 200 yards That was of us. pretty exciting. They were, we were surrounded with, with goblin birds. I mean, I, we were obviously in the right spot at the right time. I felt like George Armstrong Custer. Yeah. Yeah. You should have. I, I kept giving you hand and arm signals that we hadn't agreed to because <laughs> I didn't want to talk. That was, yeah. a, that was something I, I remembered I needed to do to, like, spin around mm-hmm. to get on birds that I thought were coming. 
And uh, we had a hen and two gobblers sneak up behind us. Bad decision on my part. I, I had us pointed the wrong direction. But there was birds gobbling all directions. Yeah, how, how do you know? Yeah. Well, they yeah. these birds stopped gobbling, mm-hmm. so we oriented on the ones that were still gobbling, thinking they were coming in. And uh, the first one to get in on us was a hen. She was close enough that if we had a broomstick. She we, figured us out. Yeah, yeah we could have knocked her over. Yeah. Um, that was a cool morning. And uh, we were actually, we weren't 300 yards away. We weren't 300 yards away from that spot the morning you killed Oh, no, we weren't, we weren't from that spot. We probably weren't 200 yards away. Yeah. We were we on just a, moved to the other side of the field. Yep. The other side of that meadow. Yep. Yep. Um, we had seen, we had heard a ton of birds, seen a ton of birds in that area, and um, we were working a bird that was northwest of us. We were tucked up in some cedars because it was raining that morning, and I was 15 yards behind you, so I can't see as much, but for the first time in my life, I decided to bring my camera, <laughs> my camera that does video, and I had it on a, um, I know everybody videos hunts, I don't. But since you hadn't killed a bird in so long, I thought, you know what? I'm not even taking my shotgun at this point. Uh, haven't been for probably 10 days. Um, and uh, so I was like, you know, I'm not carrying anything. Uh, so I started carrying a tripod and camera. First morning I carry it, you know, we're there pre-dawn. Some guy's walking up the hill with a headlamp on. Yeah. We had to – we had to, DD Mal across the field and and shine headlamps and flashlights at him, and thank God you carry a torch. I mean, you carry a hell of a flashlight. So I grabbed your flashlight because I just use a headlamp. Ran over and warded him off with a flashlight. So I was worried we weren't going to have any birds. If they were close roosting, they saw that. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, I was working a bird that was probably he was a couple hundred yards northwest. We could both hear him, so we were both in good spirits. Hey, there's a bird, and you pointed and i said okay and you pointed again i said okay then i saw you get your shotgun up and i thought oh shit there's a bird coming and i didn't see him until he was 60 yards from you he came in from the exact opposite direction he came in from the southeast and that was a big bird he would have walked right across my legs from the day before yes if we could have stood still enough he would have walked right Right across my bias yep and he didn't make a sound. No, not the whole time he was there. Never made a sound. Quiet. And I got the whole thing on video for you. <laughs> um, what a, what were you thinking? Because he did oh, not want to commit. I, I knew that when he when he didn't come in, when he came up over that little right. patch there and he didn't come to them decoys, that he's not coming. So I, he took two or three steps and he, and he didn't get any closer, didn't get any further. But then he turned his head like he was going to go away. Well, he did it a couple times, yeah. and I used I like to do really soft calling on pressured birds late in the season. You know, I use a lot of just real soft clucks and purrs, maybe a kiki. Mm-hmm. And I was I just every time he turned to leave, I'd give him a you know little little purr, and he'd mm-hmm. turn and look, and he'd come a little closer. Then he'd go, nah, mm-hmm. he'd been shot at before. Yeah, and when he stuck his head up to look, I said, ah, this, this is the shot I'm going to get. Yeah, so I took it and laid him clean flat. That was a hell of a shot. 52 yards. Yeah. yeah. And and uh, that's the furthest I ever shot a turkey. I never shot one that far. You know, today's modern uh, today's modern shells and guns can do that. Oh, yeah. Um, you, you were shooting your favorite 
I'm shooting my duck load, man. <laughs> that tungsten, <laughs> that tungsten duck load, that three inch magnum duck load. Yeah, Kills it him. it killed him. It killed him deader than a hammer. But I got so excited, ran out there and tackled him and messed him up a little for you. <laughs> I didn't think he. I thought he was going to get up again because you shot him so far it knocked him physically. Not it rolled him. Yeah, like you'd shoot a person and catch a good bone. You know, you catch the the breastplate on a person or you catch the pelvis and roll somebody. I you rolled him. And I thought, okay, great. Well, then he kind of sort of flapped and tried to get up, and I freaked out. Sorry, I was so excited you were getting your first turkey in a number of years. I rolled out there, ran out there, and 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 went to, and uh, went kind of hard on him. Um, but uh, that was probably I, I killed a number of birds this this year, and that was probably my favorite. My favorite day. It was mine. <laughs> it was mine. <laughs> that was a damn good day. Yeah. Um, I was just, I mean, we had. We hunted hard. We hunted hard. That was probably the seventh day, and I think you're right. We hunted 10 or 11 days together. We tried again a couple times, and we're close a couple times. And then um, then our buddy, um, Scott Cronin, invited us down to his family farm. Oh, we got somebody at the house here. So, your bird's down. We uh, we get a call from our mutual friend, Scott Cronin. Scott says, hey, man, I still have turkeys uh, gobbling every morning on my, on my father's farm, on the family farm. He's got an old farmhouse. And he said, why don't y'all come out and stay overnight so we're there in time early in the morning. And he said he would go with you and call with you. And uh, I could strike out on my own and, and hunt, uh, which I hadn't carried. A, uh, between you and another Vietnam vet I was helping and uh, one other person I was calling for, I hadn't hunted for myself in days. Well, you killed the first turkey the opening morning, and then you killed one the next morning. <laughs> and then you were kind of like done yeah, <laughs> for I, a while. I, I had the good fortune to, to uh, tag out on uh, Fort Knox to – one morning, next morning, done. But it was just good because I still had state tag, and, and he invited me. So I called you, and you're like, hell yeah. So we jumped in the truck, went down there, and uh, had a nice barbecue dinner on the front. You know, had some, had on the a, front porch, yeah. Had a whiskey or two on the front porch and got up next morning, and, and uh, man, they were gobbling. And I was excited for us. I snuck. I didn't know nothing about the farm. Never seen it before. We didn't want to roost birds because the farm's so small. We might run them off. So we stayed at the little farmhouse. And um, he took you to a blind, if I'm mm -hmm. not mistaken. And I just went up in the – it was raining that morning. And I just went up in the in the forest and just kind of waited for the day to give me something. But you had a great show. Oh, man, we had a, we had a young Jake came in almost – Right after we, we could hear a couple goblin here and there, yeah. And then this young Jake walked right into the decoys and started making love to the decoy right now. <laughs> he was there maybe forty minutes, yeah, and and was was thrashing that hen decoy, yeah. And finally, I guess he just got saying, "Well, I gave it, you know, I'm I'm done." Yeah. And he walked off. And while he was doing that, there was another bird up on the hill above us, gobbling his head off. So for 40 minutes, for, you got the show. For 40 minutes. And I could have killed him at any point. Yeah. And you still had a tag in your I pocket. I still had a tag in my pocket. Yeah. But, you know, I didn't want to kill a Jake. Right. And and I was enjoying the show. I'd oh, never, absolutely. I never got to see that before. Yeah. 
So ever, ever you know, and and like Scott said later, that that turkey's head turned every color a turkey's head can turn. Yeah, that must have been. That's a beautiful thing, man. Oh, red, green, silver, yellow. Oh, it's green, amazing. Blue. Yeah, <laughs> you know, you yep. don't know. And uh, and then as that morning light changes and the fog lifts, man, it's just a pretty thing to watch. Oh, yeah. I think Ben Franklin was right, man. That should have been the national. Should have been the national bird, but had he been right, we wouldn't be able to kill him. No, that's true. So that's I mean, true. I think they are prettier than eagles. Sorry, I mean white-headed a, fish vulture. As a, yeah, as a as a veteran, I'm, my favorite fish vulture is the osprey. It's not the bald eagle. Mm-hmm. I still love to see bald eagles. I hear they taste like chicken, but I've never killed one. You know. Um, Never intend to. It's the national bird. I've been bird. in Alaska and seen 50 of them in the same tree. Yeah, it's a know? national bird. Yeah. And uh, for people who haven't been to Alaska or northern British Columbia or Yukon Territory where they're just they're, everywhere. Yeah, they're not rare. They're not rare. It's not a rare bird. They're everywhere in certain parts of North America. So, But I love them. It's a national bird. I'm just glad Ben Franklin didn't get his wish because we wouldn't be able to hunt turkeys. Mm. Um, so, yeah, that was kind of our, our the end of our turkey season was that that uh that trip i I took that 80 year old navy vet out um the very next time and god love his heart he he uh he had no problem doing the four o'clock in the morning gig and that morning you came along and and, uh, went to another location uh not too far from us another one of my spots and um he didn't make it too long and i don't blame him with covid19 out there and his him being 80 and it was colder than I mean, it, it was cool that morning. It was in the it 30s. Was, it was cool that and morning. And it was wet for mm-hmm. rain the day before. So um, then you and I went and tried to walk one down. And that's worked a couple times for me, but it's hard. I think they got to they got to be actively breeding in the in the late morning for that to work. Well, the biology is such that uh, a hen can't sit on her clutch of eggs, and she really doesn't. The weather's got to be warm enough um, for those eggs to remain viable. And um, when we were getting those cold nights and cold mornings, the hens just won't breed. They know that that uh, they're going to lay eggs that are going to freeze. Mm-hmm. And so they won't breed. So that pushes peak breeding further into the season. So you're exactly right. that When they're still breeding that time of the morning, you, you – you, God, you probably ain't going to kill one until 11 at the earliest. And uh, we were hunting on Knox that morning, and um, you got to quit hunting Knox uh, at 1. 1. Yeah. So we walked our legs off. Yeah, you, we walked several miles. You lost a little weight this turkey season. I lost season. 15 pounds. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I but walked your legs no, off. No, man, but that was good. Yeah. That was good. I mean, yeah. from one flight physical to the next, I'm at 205 and I'm at 190. So, yeah. you know, it's, it's 15 Walking pounds. after turkeys, man. Walking after turkeys. So so you taught me a bunch about ducks, and I don't, I'm not trying to be egotistical. This is a mentoring podcast. Did you learn anything? I learned from, a lot. From my sorry ass on turkeys? My box call is I can make all the right sounds with it, mm-hmm. but when they're in close, you can't have that much movement. Yep. You can't have your yep. hands flicking around. No. So I've, I've got to, I've got to figure out it. And I, a, a, a diaphragm call, I can't. I it just a gag. Yeah. I ain't got it. Right. I ain't got it. But, well, the but funny that part slate is, call, I think I could. I oh, yeah. You can definitely use a slate, but you're moving your hands as well. Again, but it's not, you're not doing that. You're doing. Oh, yeah. It's a smaller movement. It's a much That's smaller right. movement. That's you can kind of disguise it. Yep. And and I transition from calls. Most turkey hunters, I think, do. Um, 
you know, I will, I, when they are in visual range, I actually will put the slate down and then I'll use a diaphragm, you know, a mouth call. Mm -hmm. Um, for those like you who gag on them and that's a gag reflex, nothing you can do about it. A lot of people can't use a mouth call that little one button push call. Cause you can have your shotgun on your knee with your other hand mm -hmm. and you're a right-handed shooter. So you could have that right hand where it needs to be next to the trigger. And, uh, that little tiny push call, you know, that little tiny box push calls is, a, is if you need to turn them around. And, uh, but, uh, yeah, man, old dogs can learn new tricks. I learned, I learned a lot. Yeah. I learned a lot. I, uh, I gotta be comfortable. I got a thin butt. Yeah. And my, my ass cushion wasn't quite thick enough. Yep. So I moved a lot. And I like my coffee. I'll pour me a cup of coffee here, yeah. here and there. So I'm, I have a lot of built-in movement. You do. <laughs> I have a lot of you do. You movement. are, you are a foreshore duck hunter. Yeah. And uh, I would say if you don't have um, someone to call for you to help uh, mask the sound of your movement and whatnot, that a blind would be a good idea. Oh yeah, sure. Um, but I can, I can tell you this. And I had a mutual friend ask us about your movement. He said, "Larry moved, doesn't he?" I said, "Yeah, he moves quite a bit." He said, well, how'd he kill a turkey? I said, son, when that turkey was in the field, he had his gun on him for 20 minutes. I don't think Larry moved an inch. Once that turkey was in front of you and you got your gun up and both hands on that gun, I couldn't even tell you were breathing. You're sitting so damn still. I give you a compliment there, brother. That, uh, it, th that's just natural. Right. Leopard climbs in a tree. Everybody's quiet. Cool. Right. Yeah. But uh, I'd say we're going to continue to hunt together in fact i know oh, yeah. we are because we got uh, we got that montana thing you're gonna going. teach me how to hunt mule deer that's that's one of my favorite things yeah that's one of my favorite i, I kind of cut my western teeth on big mule deer yeah uh a, a real famous mule deer outfitter got his name in boone and crockett's book a couple of times named ridge taylor yeah took me under his wing at an early age and showed me how to kill big trophy mule deer yeah see i've got a playbook for turkeys i run the same playbook every day if if I go to where, <clears throat> you know, you can't put them to bed on, on public land easily. Mm -hmm. um, you can't roost a turkey easily on public land. You can, but it, it's just not. It, it, it's difficult, especially on Knox or Campbell because you got to be out by one, so right. you absolutely can't. So you got to go to where you think they're going to be. It's, you know, it's pretty much like deer hunting. You're going to, you know, good terrain, good habitat, and all that stuff. I get close um, to where I think they're going to be. I stay quiet. Don't use a shot call. And then I take what the morning gives me and, and do pretty good. Between me and you and the other people I mentored, we killed six birds this year. We and heard birds every day. Talk to talk to them almost every day. We, we heard birds every day. And, yeah. I, and I'm, I've never had the wherewithal to be a, a shock kind of caller. But I've, I've often thought that maybe I'll just let them tell you where they're at. Yeah, you know, we, right? because when the minute you, you the minute you make that sound, they know where you're at. Right, absolutely. They know yep. where you're at to and, the nth degree. And we get there two hours before sunup and take a nap, mm -hmm. and just listen to the world come up. And it's amazing how much you know you can learn if you sit still. But there were so many people, and it had to be for COVID nineteen. People are home. They ain't I, got nothing to do, and they went turkey hunting for the first time in years. Everybody said, "What am I going to do this morning?" I think I'll go turkey hunting. Yeah. I'll take my owl hooter and go turkey hunting. Yeah, and and they did. Yeah, we we had. I heard more owl hooting than I've ever heard. 
and I wish, you know, and I don't want to say bad things about other, other hunters or other public land hunters, but gentlemen, if you're listening to this podcast, please transition to a crow call after sunup. At least do that much. Yeah. Um, and Al Hoot will still get them, but it's just not natural. Um, so, um, full disclosure, uh, you're president of Kentucky NS Fire Club. Start of the chapter. Yeah. Was his first president yeah. back in the 90s, and now yeah. I'm, I'm on my fifth term and soon to be unpresidented. Yeah. Um, you guys won some awards this year. We won. Uh, we had a grand slam this year. We we won a chapter of the year for chapters our size. Right. We won a newsletter of the year. Yeah. We won the uh, website, both websites of the year. Yeah. And well, uh, the auction program of the year. We kind of hit a home run this year. We've yeah. we've been fortunate the last couple of years to get chapter of the year, uh, and newsletter, and the newsletter. We've we've had we've got good people, right? And they do what they do. Clean sweep though. Clean sweep. That's a, that's a uh, good year to hang up your spurs there as president's fire <laughs> club. Yeah, I, I got a feel I'm gonna be around for a while. But oh, I'm gonna need your help with legislative affairs, man. But uh, you know, five years, five terms is plenty. Yeah. Uh, everybody kind of gets stale. Yeah. And I, I'm not stale, but I think maybe people are stale of me. <laughs> so. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's know, just like military command. You, you got to change at, command at point, to, yeah. to change, to keep the momentum. That's right. To keep your, mo we've built a lot of momentum the last few years and we've got to keep it. Yeah. And the way you do that is you get young, eager people and you, and you let them, yeah. You let them drive the train. You guys have done something really smart. You got a, uh, you got a youth position on your board now. We do. Yeah, that's smart. And that was that's like four years now. Yeah. And we and we've got a young college graduate as, as was one of our board members who's that you know twenty three, twenty four, twenty five ish. Yeah. And we've got an eighteen year old on the board who's yeah. a senior in high school. And they're learning how important it is that you know not just for conservation but for legislation and policy for and leadership in the conservation you, you know, got you, you got to grow your own leaders and you got to interface with government yeah you can't just sit back and hope and pray that our outdoor heritage is still going to be here that for didn't your, work for us it didn't work no it didn't and work in kentucky we've suffered from a lack of leadership until the last two years we, we have we, we we've yeah. really suffered apathy right it. apathy is you know things were going along so great right we didn't feel like we needed to watch. And then bad things happen. And then bad things happen. Yeah, and we've lost a, a couple of uh, a couple of the uh, commissioners, the people that run our department in a row, have had to resign before they were fired here. In, in, uh, but not, not now. Not now. We, we're, we're uh, although we don't always agree, we are kind of a team. We're the, the district commissioners who are the appointed by the governor and the heads of the biggest conservation organizations in the state like i say we don't always agree but we talk but we talk and we dialogue and we are making things better together so i gotta believe that's how it's going to happen I, I i don't think that everyone's going to get their way every time but when things get to be transparent and and the sportsmen who are paying the bill get to have the input that they think they should have yeah then I think everybody can be pleased with the outcome. Well, it can't be any other way. No. The way you said it just now is the way it's got to be. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, man, this has been great. Um, a lot of these things I already knew. I actually learned one or two extra things about you. I didn't know anything about the Chi-Chi's deal. 
Um, is there anything you wanted to talk about that I didn't bring up? Oh man, we we're good. Yeah. We're good. I, I, you know, I'm as you said earlier. I'm in the kind of the winter of my years. Uh, late fall. Late fall. But I, I need to get another ten years out of you at least. But you know this 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 winter, I've been doing this this elk hunt with my daughter for the last few years. Yeah. You know that's a public land Colorado bull that's six by six over on the wall. She shot that on public land. Yeah, that's a without nice a guide. I mean, with us, just yeah. me and her. Yeah. And uh, I find any, and we're going to do an ibex hunt in Spain this this late winter, right? And you and I are doing the, uh, and I'm going to enjoy, I'm going to enjoy having her side of the wall, kind of replace my side of the wall. <laughs> yeah, that's cool, you know, man. Yep. That picture right there on the spine of Baja, uh, when she was just fixing to graduate high school, we went five days up on the on the spine of the Baja Peninsula, right. no water, foot hunt, and we had a ball. Yeah. And I'm going to have some more of them. Father, father, son, or father-daughter mule deer hunt. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that was a hoot. That oh. was, you know, I've I've had a lot of fun when I didn't have a rifle in my hands. It's a good thing she's downstairs because her head would be getting really big if she was yeah, anywhere, yeah, anywhere near us right I know. now. But, you know, often when I was a professional hunter, I used to think back, man, I could be having a ball if I didn't have these guys with me. <laughs> i could be having a hoot here and you know it's not it's not often that i'm guided but uh you pointed me to uh steve johnson uh two years ago uh ultimate alaska adventures and um you know steve gave me uh first off he's first class and and i mean if you're gonna hunt the mountains in alaska you, you can't do you cannot do anything wrong mm by hiring Steve Johnson. So, you know, he get, he paid me a hell of a compliment. And it was basically that, you know, I realized my job was to shut up, do what I was told, be the weapon system. <laughs> you know, climb the mountain, keep up, and you know. be there when the shot falls. Yeah, and then, you know, let him and the – and the, I actually had two guides. I didn't have a guide and a packer. I had him and one of his younger guides, and they, they acted as guide and packer, but it was really two guides – and it was like, you know, hey, I know you're this army officer and you're a ranger and all this stuff, but, buddy, you're just a weapon system. You, we're going to get this sorted out for you. You keep up and then shoot when we tell you. And, it, man, it, we were done. We were out of the mountains before any of his other groups of hunters and guides with a Boone and Crockett mountain goat. Yeah, I got to tell you, that was eight days of hard hunting for me. Yeah. Oh, and, I don't And, and I'm, thank God I did it then because I couldn't do it now. Uh, well, they – they say you climb through sheep country to get to goat country, right. and they are not joking. They're not. Yeah. You know, where we shot those deer, those peninsula blacktails, yeah. we were looking down at the desert bighorns. Yeah. Oh, my. We were looking downstream, at downhill at desert bighorns yeah. you're, in you're, Mexico and Baja. The way the elevation was, you the were above them. We were well above them. Yeah. That's cool. That was cool. Well, brother, this has been a pleasure. Um, uh, for everybody who's listening – uh, if you like the intro music and the uh, music that takes us home at the end here, uh, that's by a talented young man named Grayson Jenkins. First name Grayson, like Grayson County, Kentucky. Last name Jenkins, just like it's spelled. Um, uh, I like Grayson's music. I'm thankful he lets us use it. Uh, please uh, reach out and find him on uh, YouTube. And if you like his stuff, um, you can buy his albums, you can get his songs, but the easiest way I found to find him is to see him on uh, YouTube. You can see what he looks like, kind of see his music videos and listen to his music. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. Um, and, uh, if you need any work done on your truck, like a, 
uh, topper or uh, running boards or, or just any kind of upfitting for your truck, uh, please talk to Walter at Louisville Toppers. Uh, he's been working on my trucks for over a decade. Uh, all of the upfitting on my current truck was done at Louisville Toppers. And uh, he will give you a discount if you go in and mention me, Colonel Abel, and uh, tell him that I sent you. He'll give you a discount on your work there. Uh, he's located at 4040 Preston Highway in Louisville. And they're on the World Wide Web at LouisvilleToppers.com. That's Louisville, like the city of Louisville, Toppers, T-O-P-P-E-R-S, all one word, LouisvilleToppers.com. If you'd like to reach me and talk about this show or any future show, or if you're somebody who's uh, been wanting to get into the outdoors, hunting, fishing, camping, hiking, scouting, uh, reach out to me at Ranger, R-A-N-G-E-R, at The Slow Hunt. Uh, the slow hunt, all one word, ranger at the slow hunt.com. And, uh, maybe we can hunt fish together. I'll, I'll take you out and show you something. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure, pleasure. And, uh, remember this podcast is part of the slow hunt LLC network. Slow is smooth and smooth is fast. One, two, one.